This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's the place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here one more time with Core Brain Journal, doing what we can to democratize the evolution of neuroscience globally. We're really interested in having everybody out there get some kind of idea of what's going on in the evolution of neuroscience. And today we're going to have a very interesting guest. He's visiting us from the Netherlands. He lives in New Zealand. Mr. Brent Williams is going to talk to us about the nuances of informed self-help. Thanks so, so much for coming on board, Brent. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck. Happy to be here. So what we're going to do is do a couple of words from our sponsors, and we're going to talk to this very interesting guy who has a lot of insights that are going to be helpful on a very, I love this word, utilitarian level, something we can do that will take us to that next level of where we want to go. So to start off, CBJ, Core Brain Journal, is sponsored by Direct Health Access Laboratories with over 3 million studies. They are deep leaders of experience with the big picture of measuring, for example, some very important neuroscience levels, methylation, cryptopyrrole, and copper challenges. And if your doctor doesn't know about them, we strongly recommend that they get connected with uh, Direct Health Access. They have a global service with a molecular focus. Stay tuned and head over to DHA Lab singular dhalab.com forward slash core for more specific info on how these specific tests can directly address treatment failure. And Corporate Journal is also sponsored by the nonprofit Barry Robinson Center teams in Norfolk, Virginia, where they have a variety of very interesting comprehensive programs, including a in-house substance abuse program for children and adolescents as it uh, is uh, required. And they do provide residential care on an evolved family and interpersonal level, and they have a unique, comprehensive biomedical workup over there at Barry Robinson that will deal with treatment failure even if the person's been in acute care, if they've been in therapy for a long period of time. If they're a treatment failure, then this is another reason we like both of our sponsors, but these folks have it on a residential and they will use actually some of the DHA laboratory testing to do their work over there. So the issue is if you're interested in any kind of concern about how do we deal with my child who has had a number of different treatments and just is not working, then run over to barryrobinson.org forward slash core and they will give you a really good information about what's going on over there they have that assessment team that is really remarkable so with that we're going to move on to brent williams and brent brent is from wellington new zealand friends he's the author of a very interesting book out of the woods it has obviously several meanings it's a graphic novel about his journey through depression alongside good research, and practical self-help strategies that he's discovered in his own personal life and his own research. He founded the Wellington Community Law Center out there in New Zealand. 
which implements the Care of Children Act and the Parenting Through Separation Program for the Family Court in New Zealand, a worthy undertaking, and established the Legal Rights Resources Trust over there in New Zealand as well. He's up in the Netherlands right now promoting his book, Out of the Woods. And Brett, we're just really excited to hear what your experience was and how it is out there on the road. So how did you come to write this book in the first place? What happened to you where you, you had to face the monster of reality in your life? Yeah, it's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> um, I had no choice, really. My body decided to shut down and, and tell me that I needed to address a few things, one or two things in my life. Mm. Um, but seriously, it was a game changer. You know, I, I literally was stopped in my tracks the good work that I was doing for other people and that I loved. And, you know, as a um, father of four kids and I, you know, I had a, an established business and family and partner, friends, and suddenly all that just crumbled. Um, I wasn't able to work. I was depressed, deeply depressed. And rather than face depression, I turned my back on everything. I thought it was the only logical thing to do at the time and run away from everything and go and hide. And that's literally what I did. Mm. And it wasn't until I realized and faced my depression came, you know, and realized what I had and it was an illness. It was a serious one. I need to do something about it. Then I started to do good things for myself. Did I start getting well? But that was a process of many years and many years of stumbling, trial and error, denial, shame, uh, just a whole stack of things. And I guess that's why I wrote the book. I thought I'd been through a lot. I'd experienced a lot. And it took me a while to realize what I needed to do to get well. Um, and I thought well, it was worth writing about. And it was yeah. the writing process was just part of my healing process anyway. I needed I, I needed to do it. I needed to write about my, my life experience and where I'd got to. What, to put it together, to wrap it up. You know, Brent, I want to say that's very interesting because – one of the reasons I'm so pleased to have you on is going to sound sexist, but I mean, it is gender specific. Guys are the worst about admitting they have a problem. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's very, the masculine prototype is to deny any pain. Just keep, you know, walking on with your colleagues to fight the mastodons wherever they are. Yeah. And Jeez. you know, what happens is your legs cut off and you're still going to walk. You know, it's just, is a terrible thing. And, you know, we see this in all the Clint Eastwood movies, uh, you know, Gran Torino's an example, where a person's really in trouble, and they don't know what to do with it, and they just keep sucking it up and keep, and for you to come out and say, hey, I faced the monster, I'm really looking forward to hearing more about how you actually did that. It is atypical. It's definitely atypical, and there are guys out there that need to listen to this piece because we see it all the time. And usually what happens, a person has to have a very serious blow in some way for them to say, okay, well, I guess I'll have to talk to somebody because uh, you're obviously an intelligent guy. You're a writer, an author. And the other problem is not only being a guy, but being smart. You know, if you're a guy and you're smart, oh, you're a do-it-yourselfer to the max. And DIY doesn't one, work. <laughs> doesn't one more work. thing. If if you also your whole reputation is built on helping others, well said. 
add that and then you've got this real cocktail of like i don't want anyone to help me i'm the strong one i'm not mm -hmm. the one that gets weak i can get through this surely some way i can do this on my own so it's that that was also in there. excellent point of clarification i really appreciate it so so then what did you ask so you were you were out for quite a while from your family how long were you out there in the woods years really mm. oh that must have been terrible what did you do did you just would you become a uh, blue collar worker or how did you actually manage yourself when you were out there well, I was fortunate that I had um, insurance through my business, um, which is probably a bit of a mixed blessing, really. It meant I could delay getting well, but it also meant that I could get well. So it did both things for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think perhaps the reality would have struck home harder and faster if I had realized that I had no other options. You know, mm -hmm. So literally, because I still had income, I was very fortunate. I could take myself away, hide pretend to be dealing with it in some other way and you know it does work to some extent um the symptoms of depression did lift when i ran away and removed myself from all the stresses in my life yes but then of course the stresses come in wherever you go you cannot hide from the stress in life they come on in the smallest of ways and you're so fragile because you haven't really dealt with any of the issues you're going to crumble again and that's what i kept doing mm. crumbling picking myself up going somewhere, hiding, falling over again. And it just went on for years, really, in denial. Mm. And, well, uh, what were you doing in terms of helping others? I, am, I would be interested, and I think our audience would be interested in hearing what your service was. What did you do? Well, um, the, for the years prior to depression, I was making resources um, on mental health, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Well, that's where I was going. It sounded like it might be. <laughs> so, yeah, I had... I've made documentaries about people and for professionals to help them identify how to assist in the area of adolescent mental health. I mean, that is the bizarre thing that I had some knowledge in the area. And um, I was also making resources about child abuse. Domestic violence was a core area of mine and uh, parental separation and the impact of that on children. So that was my daily diet. Mm. Um, now, all these were issues in my own life. These were all issues that I had experienced during my childhood, but I was not aware of the connection. I was mm. driven. I was possessed to do this work. I was a champion, but I was, I was totally unaware that, that what was really, what was really pushing me. And of course it was going to push me to a brick wall at some stage in my life. It was, a, it was amazing that I that it took to my late forties for it to happen. Well, your blessing is that you're curious. <laughs> you, you had something. I want to figure this darn thing out. And well, I'm, I'm against the wall, and I've been good at figuring it out, but uh, I'm going to figure it out through one kind of – I'm just going to throw the ball around and practice for a while, and I'll ultimately figure it out. And, uh, but do you know what depression makes you do? And this is common, I'm sure, is that depression makes you go take the ball – go into a dark corner and sit there and look at it intently thinking you can actually work out how to play this game. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't leave you day and night. You're trying to work your way out of depression using your mind to do it. And it's just a game depression loves to play. And it just takes you further and further down the hole and it's darker and harder to get out. But you're convinced. I was convinced that if I just worked at it hard enough, I could pull myself up, get myself out. 
And all I was doing was just driving myself further under. It was a fascinating mental process. Well, I think that's a very useful, worthwhile clarification because that is indeed what happens with people that we've seen is they, they get lost in that netherworld and they mm. keep trying to find the answer. Somehow it should arise from within. Mm. And uh, the answer is somehow going to be a cognitive answer in mm. terms of, you know, a light bulb goes on or some kind of transformational experience instead of, yeah. I've just got to start doing some things differently here and I've got to figure yeah. out. And I think another thing, you haven't said this, but I'm looking forward to that first step out. What was your objective when you began to see that you were stuck? How did you then begin to get unstuck? What, was, what were some of the steps you took to unstick? Well, there were several steps because I, I kept this sort of doing something quite good and then ret retreating and then falling over, getting back up again. So there was many steps. The first big step was I remember noticing my behavior was very odd. And I thought, shit, this isn't normal. This is not right. You, there's something very odd about your behavior. You better go and see your, your doctor. So I had a doctor to go to. I had a, um, an MD or a GP. Mm-hmm. And I went to him and I described what was happening, but that took a while. I didn't turn up to my doctor and say, hey, doctor, I'm feeling like this. I went with some excuse that I had some other rash to deal with with some cream and I was just about out the door. And I just said, oh, there's something else I need to talk to you about. I almost got out the door without talking about the reason I'd gone to see him. <laughs> and I described and he was very good. He just pushed his pen and paper aside and sat there facing me and I couldn't get away. And he said, what's going on? So I described some of the symptoms and I said, I just, I don't know. It's weird. I said, this is the, my loved ones have this sort of dark shadow around them and I'm just lying in bed crying in the middle of the day and I can't get up. Um, and he just said, listen to me for 20 minutes and said, you're suffering from classic major depression. He sent me to a psychiatrist who came up with the same conclusion, just a lot more pages of describing what was going <laughs> on. <laughs> and they sent me to a therapist. So that was the start of my journey, but I was bucking and resisting and still wasn't taking any of this on board. When I got the psychiatrist report, I thought I was reading a report on a client of mine. I, I literally didn't absorb it. It was still, I was still so resistant. It was really, so the first step was going to my GP and um, then for many steps really, little steps and still always thinking that I could get out, that I didn't need these people's help, that I wasn't depressed, that it was yep. something else, clutching onto something else. But eventually after a few years, I ran out of options. And again, I was lying in bed feeling absolutely terrible thinking, Brent, you've run out of options. Come on. You need to take some medication. You need something else. This is what all your efforts have failed. It was sort of that point that I realized that I needed to do something else. And I took some medication. It wasn't a, and it wasn't a traditional prescription. It was a sort of alternative. It was the best I could do at that point. And I got myself to a good therapist and I stuck with that therapist and she more than anything helped me through this process. Well, let's talk a little bit and amplify on this one point because you hit an extremely seminal uh, transition point there that I think so many struggle with. I see it every 
single day that I'm in practice. Yeah. But it would be great to hear it from you. And that is your resistance to medication. I think that's pervasive. I think it's one of the reasons I'm doing Core Brain Journal because I've seen it so often. Mm-hmm. I want to get individuals like yourself to like put it out on the table so an individual can really address these kinds of issues with themselves yeah. a little more um, successfully and quickly yeah. uh, because it's the, the whole thing. So let's tell us what your perspective was on why no medication, why was the resistance there? What were you thinking about there? Well, I think at the most fundamental level, I could come up with all sorts of reasons which are partly valid. The most fundamental one is just like I didn't want a therapist or a doctor or anyone to help me. I didn't want a medication to help me. Mm-hmm. It was like that in itself was a weakness. Mm-hmm. To, to, to accept medication meant I was weak and I wanted to get out of this on my own. I was strong and I wasn't going to give in to something that was going to assist me. It was mm-hmm. that basic, really. Yeah. Then there were other complications. I had anxiety, so I was anxious about the side effects and what they would do to me. My doctor described, well, it's going to could affect your sleep. Um, and um, you know, a number of other things, and I just ran from those things. And there was a complicating factor for me is that my father had taken um, Valium and other tranquilizers all his life, and um, in large, large quantities, literally handfuls of Valium to get through his day. And you know, I was strongly resistant because of that as well. Mm-hmm. So, but I think if I was really honest, it would be that I didn't want help. I had to do it on my own, and that included getting out of depression without medication. And I look back now and think how foolish that was. I so wish I had tried because, sure, there was there are some side effects, but I was going through depression, I and mean, you can't get worse than that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to end my life. Well, this taking medication earlier could have stopped it getting deeper and more severe, which it did. Um, and you know, I now look back and what I know about the brain. It was a very foolish thing to do. I should have tried. It might have just picked me up earlier, got me on the, got me on a path of face, still facing the things I needed to face. Um, it just got me there earlier and with less collateral damage. Thanks so much for sharing that personal note because that amplification on the question, as you talked about your family, uh, is what we see all the time. We see individuals come in, uh, your father wasn't an alcoholic, but he was using medications excessively, but he had no recourse. He was just trying to take care of himself. But when a child sees that, it's like being an adult child of an alcoholic. You see the same thing happen with individuals who grow up in uh, substance abuse families. It doesn't have to be child of alcoholic. It can be child of a cocaine parent or a heroin parent. It doesn't matter. Uh, They see these chemicals work against their parents, and frequently when they're not administered correctly, people do actually get worse under the medication. I mean, look, they can get worse under the medication if you're doing it exactly right because of other biomedical influences, which is a whole nother topic, which we talk a lot about here. Mm -hmm. But uh, back to the issue, if, if a person's programmed that way without even being aware of programming, they then fight that because they just don't want to go down that rabbit hole. And I'm, you said it, but I'm going to say it even more explicitly because we see it so often. Key point. 
Well, it was very big for me too, because I mean, I tried from a very young age to be a very different person to my father. He was a hugely dominant force in my life. And um, he perpetuated a lot of abuse in the family. So I was working, you know, all my, my whole life from a from very young teenager was about being different to him. So, you know, when I was sick, when I got depression, anxiety, like he did, I wanted to do that differently too. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was, that was a big thing. And there had been you know, a family member had taken 200 of his Valium to try and end their mm. life. So that was a big factor as well. Oh, yeah. Looming in my head. That's heavy. Let me ask you another question. In fact, what I'm going to do is take a little break here because we're deeply into an important conversation. But the question I'm going to ask you when we return, which is another important step on the pathway for so many people. Uh, there's a great variation in, in uh, general practitioners and other physicians in terms of their willingness to write for meds or their knowledge about using meds correctly. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you to offer your observations as best you can from your own um, experience and from your own reading. What does a person do? How does a person evaluate the um, mixed messages that might come up from a practitioner who's really not too sure about what to do and wasn't as adroit at the entire situation as your family practitioner was. And then what does a person like yourself do under those circumstances? It'll be very interested. We'll be back in just a moment to hear what your thought is about that. Well, folks, you know, as well as I do that psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medication trials and those very, very brief hospitalizations may prove insufficient to deal at home with the complexity of troubled children and, and those adolescents from 6 to 17 years old. Improved care, those next mandatory steps, should include a more comprehensive approach to address those multiple levels of challenges, from family to peers to school, diagnostically from defiance to depression. On every level, for families including military families internationally. The Barry Robinson Center's 32-acre open college-like campus in Norfolk, Virginia, provides safety and security and clean, comfortable living. How do we know? We refer folks over there all the time, strongly endorse what they're doing. So for further information and informed interview, connect at this page, barryrobinson.org forward slash core. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's d h a 
lab.com forward slash core. Well, Brent, we really appreciate your spending the time with us because you're really sharing some very important vulnerabilities and challenges that you experienced. And the reason I was asking that question about what does a person do if the family practitioner or if the person that they inquire, it could be a psychiatrist, uh, could be a nurse practitioner, it doesn't matter who the person is, if they have some ability to write for medications, but in fact, you can tell by the way they're handling you, does that confirm that people don't know what they're doing or what do you do under those circumstances? I think the system is very hard for those people to operate in and it needs to change. I don't know how an MD can, can explain you know, carefully and slowly in a language that a depressed brain can actually take on board and make dis informed decisions in the usual time that's available to them. And I would say it would need about 45 minutes, nothing less. To think that they can do it in 15 minute slot is just absurd really so the person's going to get fired some information they're going to go out the door they're going to be really confused their decision making ability is really poor and they're somehow got to make a decision about about taking something which is perhaps they're really resistant or confused over so they need resources they need time and they need a lot of support and i don't think the system allows that i think you're quite right it's the reason i asked the question and I think your answer is very compelling because if you really think about it, it's, it's almost like if it was a person like yourself who goes in to see somebody and they finally said, gosh, I've just got to do something. I think one thing that would be important, it's, it's a little bit of an administrative obvious point, administratively obvious point, is to say, I just need a little more time because I've got something that's troubling me and I just can't, I can't do it in 15 minutes. Could I work out a half an hour with somebody? I think if you said that on the front end, uh, most medical offices are ready to, okay, this is more serious. I just have to do it. We can't do it uh, in 15 minutes. And as you well know, the whole system is set up for, for brief visits. We do this in our office. But we do 15 minutes when there are no complications, and it's uh, nothing's routine. Every single day, every single med check is and does have to be a custom job. But on the other hand, if the complexity is diminished by some progress, then you're in a different state than if you're completely raw, unzipped, and vulnerable. And in that situation, you know, my own take of it would be if a person just said, I just need some more time, I think most physicians would say, I can do that, or I just don't have time for that. I'm going to refer you to this guy to get that done. Yeah. But you definitely need to see a doctor because the depression symptoms, they really shift around and they vary from person to person. And, um, you know, I really caution people just to go to the internet and try and self-diagnose their, their symptoms. It's a range of symptoms that could, could be any amount of things could be going on. It could be their thyroid packing up. It could be their kidneys packing up. And it's creating hormonal, uh, hormonal imbalance, which is giving all the symptoms of depression, but it's something else. They might be really lacking in certain things in their body, you know, that need blood tests and, and other things. So, you know, the, the the MD is such an important person to take care of the whole. I went off and I I wanted somebody. I was targeting individual therapists and practitioners to target particular symptoms, each one of them, whether mm -hmm. it was whether it was my inability to sleep or 
uh, muscular problems or uh, migraines. Um, and there's any amount of people who will focus on those individual ailments. And we'll say, yeah, well, you could have a brain tumor, so we better put you on an MRI. But mm-hmm. it takes the MD to say, well, this massive symptoms looks pretty much like depression. This is mm-hmm. what we needed to be looking at mm-hmm. and to do some underlying tests if there's some concerns there. So I think it's really important to, you know, to see a doctor. You know, Not it's so good to hear. Internet chasing. <laughs> I, I, I quite agree with you, obviously, because I'm on the physician's side, but we see so many people who are short-ended because they – and it was one of the reasons I asked the question previously, because they either don't, they don't chase it hard enough. I just need to get set up to really think, okay, this is going to take some energy on my part and it may not work out best the first go round. I just may need something else, but I've got to start somewhere. I think that first step is as the, you know, wise men say is, is, is the longest one. But then if they actually take that first step, and they think that there's, a, and they really understand the fact, and this is a very important point for, for our guests. Our guests repeatedly make this point here at Core Brain Journal is that there, there's a science. There, you know, we're in a Galileo mind moment. We have new technologies that completely change it. This isn't about dreams and fantasies and just your childhood, although your childhood is relevant as we just talked about, but it's a whole complexity of things that go beyond labels and label games is how do we get, how do we deal with this human being in his, her entirety? And, and the science is there. And I'm so glad to hear you say that because so many people take a position of the whole thing with medicine is out the window. And uh, they take the position that even that the biology is real. They don't even think biology is a real aspect of it because we've had so many years of psychoanalytic psychotherapy uh, as being the main, even now, 2017, as the main course in a person's life instead of going ahead and doing something biologically about it. Well, I mean, I would say you throw the book at depression. It's a tough opponent. And you don't muck around in working out which one of a number of things which might work. And you need to look at everything. You need to look at your lifestyle. You need to look at your biological factors. You need to look at your social social issues. Um, you need to look at historical issues. You know, if you're, if you're midlife and you've lived, you know, a good chunk of life and you're full over with depression, then it's going to be a whole heap of stuff. You know, it might be different for a teenager who's grief has set them, up, set them off into a depression path. Um, but I think for me, it was, it, was, it was, I needed a full overhaul and I needed to tackle it at all, all levels. <laughs> um, that, was, that was the reality. Um, and I think there's also a danger with meds is that people think that antidepressant, oh, well, it will, some people think it's, that's all they need to do. They just take a pill, carry on with their life, and it will just be fine. And I, yeah. it doesn't tend to happen. No. For a few, it does. For many, it saves their life. But for a good chunk of people, it's not enough. They need to do more than that. They need to actually just see the medication as well, how I describe it in my book. It's a life jacket to keep you afloat. You've still got to swim to shore. You've still got to do a lot of stuff to get to get back to shore and then back home. But it's better than drowning and the antidepressant <laughs> might keep you afloat enough. You know, the problem, the energy, people think, okay, I'm just going to go ahead and drown. I don't have the energy for it. But the issue is uh, it, once it's interesting because I've talked to so many people, I haven't been in that particular place myself. So this isn't from personal experience, but I've seen so many people 
that just getting started, what you just said a moment ago, and by looking at the complexity, looking at the medication, <laughs> looking at the relationships, looking at their family, and looking at their path, the whole thing becomes a picture that has a certain, it, it eventually becomes more bold relief of what the problem is. You can understand it and you can work the program. It's just that those first steps are filled with denial. I wonder what the heck is that? Oh, you know what? My phone went off. Siri, did you hear it talking in the background? Yes. My phone went off. You know, I got it turned off. (laughs) And sometimes it just picks up and like, where did that person come in? It's like, oh my gosh. But anyway, back to it. I think the thing is, is complexity to it. I think it's really important to uh, deal with the complexity. And that is, and I'm so grateful, I know others are, for you saying that this, as a guy who was in denial, that you were able to overcome it. So let's tell us a little bit, one other quick question, and that is, did you experience um, additional bumps after you got started that were educational for you in terms of uh, perseverance? Yeah, I think the big one, the big thing for me was exercise. It's just working out the right balance between rest and exercise. You know, we get the message that exercise is good for you, and it absolutely is. And it's it's a good way of, of helping you get out of depression. It absolutely is. But, you know, it's um, the exercise is an interesting thing. How often do you hear when you should exercise, how much you should exercise? So I had to learn the hard way. I was sleeping a lot sitting around at home, not getting out of the house until four o'clock in the afternoon, dragging myself along about five o'clock when it's starting to get dark, thinking I was doing a good job exercising and then coming back and not sleeping at night, sleeping during the day. So I learned the hard way that I needed to get up early in the morning. Mm -hmm. I needed to get out when it was light, see some sunlight, exercise in the morning, even though it was hard and my body was the most lethargic in the morning, that pushed me into and to get the right amount of exercise, like around about 20 minutes mm-hmm. of a little bit of heart pumping. And then I was, then I was set with some energy to actually get through the day and then to sleep better that night. So it set me into a good wake sleep pattern and so on. So that took a long time to realize that no one, no one actually advised me of that. It was just the message, you know, you need to exercise. You know, so, Brent, so- while we're on that, I point of clarification, I'm so glad you made that little, Aside 20 minutes, uh, we see people that equate exercise with an hour workout at the gym are a uh, two-mile run. I mean, the issue would be even if a person walks 20 minutes, they may ultimately wish to uh, lope a little bit or jog a little bit, but the idea of just being out there and doing it, and they don't have to be out there. They can use a treadmill at home, but nobody's going to jump at that on the first level. But just the question of having a short bit of exercise, as you said, is very workable. I mean, a person can work that in, and it's not as difficult as it sounds. It's difficult to get started, as we've been repeatedly talking about here. But I'm so glad you amplified on that point, because that little bit can add such an important measure to yep. recovery. Exactly, but too much could push you over me and I'm in bed the next day exhausted. Yeah, can't do it, right? Yeah. And also the other thing is exercise with somebody. 
and take a buddy, do something with some, do something that's pleasurable. Don't push yourself. Just, just try and bring enjoyment into the exercise. And then you get a double benefit. Really? Your brain loves that. Well, and the other connection I would say, and you haven't brought this up, but I'm the issue of, of using chemicals is, uh, you know, uh, the, un, you know, drinking and, uh, you know, whatever else you, a person might yeah. use to feel better. Yeah. Um, it's obviously counterproductive. And what happens is a person who uses, uh, we've seen people use alcohol or, or pot who are taking medications and they can't understand why the medications aren't working. I mean, we see yeah. this all the time. It's like, well, my old friend is uh, three vodkas before I go to bed, and I don't want to give that friend up because it's how I get to sleep. But then they have terrible sleep problems secondary to the high dose of alcohol that they take. Yeah. And so that whole combination uh, winds up being um, contributory to them being developmentally arrested. They just can't move forward. Yeah. Well, it wasn't my problem, but I cannot give in depression with so difficult to get through i cannot imagine how somebody could get through it if they were also dealing with alcohol and drug problems mm -hmm. it's, to me it's like sorry you cannot forget it you're not going to get well you've got to deal with these other issues <laughs> first before you can actually expect to get out of depression i think it's yeah that's a, a dangerous mix well brent i really appreciate your very straightforward articulate and interesting perspective on your own recovery. It's, it's, it's meaningful. It's helpful. Uh, others are going to appreciate this. And what we really need to do is continue to learn more. Uh, your book is out of the woods. I'm sure it's at Amazon. We'll have a link for it there in the show notes. Where else can they get a hold of you if they would like to connect with you in some level, Brent? Uh, sure. I've got a website. Um, uh, People can see a little bit more about the book and see some pictures from it. And uh, they can also write to me through the website. And that is www.outofthewoods.co.nz. It's a little different for us over here in the States. We just, <laughs> you got the co and you got the NZ at the end. We got to get that squared away. So it's outofthewoods.co.nz. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. You know, if you have any more illuminations that say, hey, Parker, you know, we need to talk about this is another thing that came up with somebody I was working with, whatever. We just appreciate having a conversation with you. It's been delightful. It's been interesting. And uh, it's so real. I mean, what you're talking about is, is in a way, uh, ubiquitous. We see this happen. When people do it the way you're doing it, they get better. When they take a piece and say, well, I don't have to do that. I'm not going to work with my family. I'm not going to deal with connections with people. I'm not going to do the run. It just winds up But to have every, we just talked for a short period of time, but you've covered such a good landscape of what needs to be done. We really appreciate it. Yeah. No, it was, it was good, Chuck. There's so much more we could talk about. Perhaps another day. Another day. If you have any ideas, give me a call. We'll do it again. Thank you thank, very much. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. 
If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.